My favorite way to unwind and dive into something more fun is June's Journey. The game lets me channel my inner detective and unlock compelling stories, strong female characters, and a mystery I want to solve. If you like true crime podcasts, it's the perfect game to play along while you listen. The Hidden Object Mystery Game will put your detective skills to the test in the roaring 1920s. You play as June Parker as she tries to solve her sister's murder and along the way uncovers family secrets. Chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Mystery, danger, romance all await you if you download the game now. I'm on chapter four and wondering how these clues will help me crack the case of who did it and why. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. If you love Snapped, Women Who Murder, you're going to love listening to true crime or mystery titles on Audible. The audio title I'm diving into again is one of my favorites to revisit, Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Ulshaker. Even if you think you know the details of the cases, former FBI unit chief John Douglas took on from documentaries or the scripted show, the audio title goes above and beyond in bringing you along with him in his career, trying to catch serial killers and serial perpetrators. He used psychological profiling to dive into the minds of notorious criminals. The title includes his hunt for a killer in Alaska, the Green River Killer, and so much more. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. The Kansas City murder of a prominent attorney leaves even the most seasoned investigators shaken. As we get up to the third floor, we keep hearing this sound and we're not sure what the heck it is. There was blood all over the elevator floor. I had never seen anything like that before. Within 24 hours, the investigation heats up, exposing a labyrinth of possible suspects. They had break-ins where they stole computer and equipment. He opened his trunk pulled back the carpet, and there was four $100 bills. She was the instigator on all those threats. She made them all up. It was just unbelievable. When the truth is revealed, it will expose a twisted and deadly obsession. She ended up saying that we'd had sex and had an ongoing affair. It's just something that you would never think that another human being would do to somebody else. It was crazy. It's a very hateful crime. June 7th, 1989, Kansas City, Missouri. It's just after 10 p.m. when a harrowing 911 call alerts police to a disturbance inside a downtown law office building. The panic-stricken caller identifies herself as 33-year-old Linda Culbertson. She said there'd been this break-in and she had been there hiding. She was terrified. 
Linda tells police that she's locked inside her third floor office and her boss, 39-year-old Donald Pierce, may also be somewhere in the building. Ma'am, we have someone on the way. Who all is in the building? Me, uh, my boss, and the security guard. Kansas City police officers Ramiro Treat and Eduardo Velasquez are among the first officers to arrive at the scene. I could hear the woman screaming inside the building. That's how loud she was. And we're like, oh, this is for real. We need to get in there and help this lady. The front door's locked. And I believe uh, Sergeant Zimmerman kicks the door in. And we take the stairwell up to the third floor of the building. We didn't take the elevator because we don't want to be enclosed. And so we're going up the stairs. My main concern was making sure that uh, we don't come across this person with a gun. We're all uh, walking up to the third floor, and at that point, you could literally smell the gun smoke that was still in the air. What crossed my mind was that something had just happened. As we get up to the third floor, we keep hearing this sound, and we're not sure what the heck it is. It was like, oh, wow, this is really eerie. And we look, and there's a briefcase that's keeping the elevator door from closing. That's all we could see at that point. As police move closer, they make a startling discovery. I look into the elevator, and this man looked like a wax figure. The hole in his head was so big, and guts were everywhere. I mean, brain fragment. It was, it was crazy. Though the discovery is shocking, officers still have work to do. We don't know if the suspect is still on the scene. We have a female that's screaming and not complying to come out to us. I remember her screaming, I can't. I just couldn't see her, but she is hysterical. She's just screaming. I could hear this woman screaming with the dispatcher. And I asked the dispatcher, does she have a gun with her? And the dispatcher said, yes. Officers work carefully to calmly lure the woman out of hiding. It was a good three minutes before she came out of the door. She put the shotgun down. She was scared, and she grabbed onto me really, really tight. And it, it freaked me out, too, because I had to push her off me because we still didn't know where this killer was. So they took her downstairs, and we were watching the emergency exits, make sure that these killers weren't going to come around and start shooting again. As they make their escape, Linda reveals the identity of the man officers have just found in the elevator. The victim was Donald Pierce. It was his business, Pierce and Associates. Born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri, Donald Victor Pierce Jr. was always center stage. Don was athletic. He worked towards doing those things and gave his best. After college, Don pursued a career in the Army Reserves. He had his... Um, Head on straight. By 1979, Donald was ready to settle down and married the love of his life, Kathy Evans. She was an executive for Sprint. She was just very sweet and very pretty and such a nice person. 
While Kathy had her own successful career, Don went back to school and began making a name for himself as an attorney. He did the usual attorney stuff, contracts, divorce work. He did well enough. I mean, his wife had a nice car, he had a nice car. He was a good boss. He never treated me bad. He was always nice to me, but he was a workaholic, put in a lot of hours. By 1984, Donald was looking for someone to help him manage his bustling law practice, and 28-year-old Linda Culbertson certainly fit the bill. Small-town girl Linda Crawford dreamt of moving to the big city and forging a career in the business world. She was involved in uh, activities at school. She wanted to do it all. Linda was very friendly. Kind of reminded me a little bit of a country girl because she just, she had a, a, a slight accent. But in 1974, at the young age of 18, Linda's ambitious plans were put on hold when she learned that she was pregnant with her boyfriend's baby. By 1984, at the age of 28, Linda found herself twice divorced and raising three young children. She was a single mom trying to work and make a living. It was then that she landed a job with Pearson Associates. Linda and I began to work in the office. We talked about our children from the very beginning and working at night with her was more like, uh, we were just hanging out. Linda impressed Donald with her hard work ethic and quickly rose through the ranks of the law firm. She had started out as a legal secretary and ended up being uh, the office manager for Pearson Associates. She was in charge of everything. Anything that was to be done, she did it. She was very pleasant to work with. I had no qualms about working with her. She was always the first one in the office in the morning and the last one to leave the office at night, if she left the office. She even had a pull-out bed there. I'd come to work, I'd say, you haven't got your makeup on, and this is what you wore to work yesterday. And she says, well, I slept here at the office. I never knew how much she got paid, but I guess she earned it. For her boss, Linda was worth every penny. Her ability to successfully manage the daily affairs of the office provided Donald the luxury of spending more time with his loving wife, Kathy. They seemed to have a happy life. Him and her were happy in, in their marriage. They were always traveling and things like that. I don't know really how, but something went wrong. The successful careers of Don and his loyal secretary, Linda, come crashing down on June 7, 1989, when Donald is gunned down inside his office building. Just something that's kind of burned in your memory is that he was shot in the face. His whole base was kind of flat up against the wall, like there was no bone structure. It was surreal. It's just something that you would never think that another human being would do something to somebody else. While Linda is escorted from the building, Officer Ramiro Treat works to secure the rest of the office. We don't know if the suspect has left the scene or he's still in the building. I'm thinking to myself that we're in a small, confined area. We really have no place for cover. 
making contact with Officer Treat and Officer Zimmerman. I was told to run back downstairs and go back to outside to the alley to keep watch on the alley to see if anybody was going to run out the back. So I hurried up and I ran back down and I kept the alley guarded. And all that time, that's when they found the security guard. Coming up, a harrowing account is revealed. He said somebody hit him on the back of the head and knocked him out and tied him up. And a string of crimes suggests a possible motive. They were constantly getting threats all the time. His office had been vandalized with spray paint. There was a plan to kill him. By June of 1989, 39-year-old prominent attorney Donald Pierce was in the prime of his life. He was an attorney, a well-known attorney. He had a good reputation. But on June 7, 1989, Kansas City police officers discovered Donald's prosperous career had come to a tragic end when they find his lifeless body shot to death in the elevator of his own office building. I remember this call like I went on it yesterday, looking at the victim in the elevator. Though Donald's office manager, Linda Culbertson, has been found shaken but safe, first responders still need to secure the building. The cavalry called out. I mean, it's not just one or two guys. They had the SWAT team or TAC team, as well as patrol officers. They had to search the whole building. It's not long before they make a discovery. I believe it may have been some canine officers found the security guard uh, that was bound and tied up on the sixth floor. The man identifies himself as 21-year-old Everson Jacobs. He was just tied up. He was conveying to the cops that he was knocked out. He doesn't know what happened. He had an abrasion and a bump on the back of his head. They looked at him, checked him out. He was treated and released. With no sign of the shooter, detectives are called in to begin processing the scene. They're focused on the victim in the elevator. He had sustained three shotgun wounds, one to his left knee, one to his right shoulder, and right eye. It was just unbelievable. The crime scene, I had never seen anything like that before. There was blood all over the, uh, the elevator floor, and there was some blood and, and bone matter that was that was scattered a little bit in the lobby. Inside the elevator, police find their first significant clue. And there was a shotgun shell casing that was next to the briefcase that was, uh, that was stopping the elevator door from closing. And I remember that Linda had a shotgun in her hand. And it also crossed my mind that maybe that could have possibly been the murder weapon. With the shell casing, police can now determine if Linda's shotgun played a role in the murder. There were still live rounds in that shotgun, and officers could tell that that shotgun had not recently been fired. It didn't smell like it had been fired. It was determined that that was not the weapon that was used to 
killed Donald Pierce. As for a motive, one theory is quickly dismissed. It wasn't a robbery just for the mere fact that all his property was left on him. He still had his wallet, his briefcase was still there, his car keys were still with him. It looked more like a hit. Police are anxious to search Donald Pierce's office for any evidence that may lead to their shooter. However, because the shooting occurred outside the office, they are temporarily forbidden to enter. You can't get in there unless you get a warrant. The only person that can give us that is the rightful owner, the rightful leasee, the rightful renter, and he's dead. We don't know what we're dealing with. We don't know who the players are, necessarily. We're always better off if we get a search warrant. Investigators work quickly to get in contact with Donald's wife, Kathy. Usually when a spouse dies, the very first person that you suspect is the closest family member. Something like 90 plus percent of victims that are killed are killed by a family member or a friend. But when police inform Kathy of her husband's death, her reaction seems genuine. It had an impact because she was heartbroken. Kathy was. She was heartbroken. They had a good relationship. She acknowledged that they just had a vacation not long before. No financial issues. He was faithful. He was trustworthy. Uh, he was conscientious. Uh, he treated her well. Judging by her shock and grief, detectives are confident Kathy isn't their suspect. Mrs. Pierce signed a consent to search to recover more items and process more of the crime scene. And I don't have any reason to doubt her. She was very cooperative, and uh, she was helpful. While CSI begin processing Donald's office, detectives head to the station to question the 911 caller, Linda Culbertson. She wasn't completely calm, but she was a little elevated, uh, nervous. According to Linda, Everything was fine as Donald left the office to go home, but within moments, she knew something was very wrong. She says, he leaves, and I lock the door behind him, and I hear some voices out there, and then I hear gunshots. She said that it scared me, and she, she ran and got the shotgun that she has, and that she hid behind a desk, and she called the police department. Detective Zinn asks Linda why she had a shotgun in her office in the first place. She explains that, well, we had break-ins where they stole computer and equipment and whatnot. Linda claims she had the misfortune of being inside the office during one of those break-ins. She had said, oh, someone came in and did this, and she was hiding in the closet and terrified, and she hid in the closet all night. Linda says that wasn't the only distressing incident that had plagued the law office in recent months. One time, his office had been uh, vandalized with spray paint. And on a separate occasion, Linda says someone even defaced personal property belonging to Donald's wife, Kathy. She had a snazzy little sports car that was uh, 
vandalized and no one had an idea who it was. They had hired security in the building just uh, due to the fact that there were some incidents where there were some burglaries in that building. I said, well, where'd you get the shotgun? Well, Don took me over to this place over in Kansas where we could buy a shotgun. I asked her how much training or whatnot she'd deal with the shotgun. She said, well, we'd go over there a couple, two or three times and until I felt comfortable. And I said, have you ever had to pull it on anybody or use it? No, 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 none of that. When asked who may be behind the killing and these other incidents, Linda acknowledges that Donald had received some threats in the past. Being a lawyer, there were people that were mad at him and that they were constantly getting threats all the time. If the client doesn't get what he anticipates he's gonna get from the judge, that may be an occasion where the client may come after the lawyer. According to Linda, one of the last clients Donald saw was a woman named Brenda, and her soon-to-be ex-husband seemed particularly upset. Linda Culbertson had said that his client's estranged husband was threatening them. That really sparked me. It could actually lead to something. I'm thinking now, let's follow this path. As a SNAP listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every case I learn about, I'm reminded how much I want to prioritize my vigilance and preparation. That's why I use and recommend Simply Safe Home Security. My cameras have alerted me about trespassers and even given me a sense of security knowing my home is safe even when I'm not there. Simply Safe offers protection for the whole house with advanced sensors that not only detect break-ins, but fires, floods, and other threats to your home and getting you the help you need for each scenario. The indoor security cameras offer privacy shutters to ensure physical privacy when you want it. Plus, you can try Simply Safe for 60 days risk-free. If you don't love it, return your system for a full refund. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/snapped. That's simplysafe.com/snapped. There's no safe like Simply Safe. After speaking to office manager Linda Culbertson, detectives in Kansas City now believe her boss, attorney Donald Pierce, may have been gunned down by a client's disgruntled spouse. Culbertson told us about his estranged husband threatened the employees and Donald Pierce. She claimed, he said, you will never take me to court again. Police work quickly to track down Donald's client, Brenda. The woman client was taken aback because she said her husband wouldn't do that. According to Brenda, her husband doesn't even live in Kansas City anymore. She knew where her husband was at, and his behavior and demeanor were contrary to what was implicated. The guy hadn't done anything, hadn't made any threats. Could a shaken Linda have named the wrong client? Or was there something more than a mistaken identity? Before detectives can answer that question, they receive news of a curious discovery in Linda's office. She had a, a cot stretched out and her clothes and stuff like that in the office. We also found a rather large dildo in her uh, closet and some other sexually related paraphernalia. 
That isn't the only stunning piece of evidence recovered by detectives. Wrapped up in uh, some type of cloth and stashed back up in the, the top shelf of her office, we found another shotgun. The new discovery immediately prompts some important questions. Why did Linda have so many guns in the office? If you're a detective, you know, you're scratching your head and say, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a victim? Something ain't right here. As police examine this second shotgun, they make a startling connection. They took the shells out and made that unique discovery. Hey, these are the same color and gauge shotgun shells that's in the hallway next to the victim's body. With Linda now looking more and more like a suspect, police at the crime scene send the gun to be tested for fingerprints and make a call back to the station. We let the detectives that were talking to Linda, let them know, that, hey, you know, hold the phone. We got something else. It fell into place real quick. That puts her in the suspect category. So I go back in and I, I keep going through her story and whatnot, and then I continue playing the sympathetic guy. Detective Zinn zeroes in on one particular detail of Linda's initial story. I said, well, were you worried that that guy could come in through any other doors and, and get you and whatnot, that you'd be a potential witness? And she says, no, no, it was, it was all locked up. Victor got her to acknowledge that, yes, she was the only one there. No one came in and pointed a gun at her and said, here, hide this shotgun in the back of your closet. When Detective Zinn confronts Linda about the weapon found in her office, her demeanor suddenly changes. Now, she's being more guarded in her answers. She also said, well, I don't know how it could have got in there. I said, well, they found it in there, and it had to get in there some way. Then, Linda drops a bombshell accusation. As Victor talked to Linda, she gave multiple stories. She said that Donald Pierce uh, repeatedly sexually assaulted her in the office. She ended up saying he was, he was rather demanding. We'd had sex and had an ongoing affair. Linda's salacious allegations certainly add a new wrinkle to the investigation, but it still doesn't explain how the shotgun ended up in her office. That's when Linda offers up a new lead. She brought up the fact that the victim in this case was very disparaging of the security guards and interjected relative to he made racial disparaging comments about them. Linda seems to imply that the relationship between Donald and the guards may even have something to do with Donald's death. Her main focus seemed to be on the, the security guard we found at the, at the scene that was tied up. She said there was some conflict between the two of them. I wasn't totally discounting that because, you know, that, that could be a possibility too, but the, that little voice inside my head gave you the, the idea that she was trying to spread the blame. For police, the only way to confirm Linda's story is to bring 21-year-old security guard Evison Jacobs in for questioning. He'd been fingerprinted, and two detectives have him recite the sequence of events, and then they have him repeat them. 
He couldn't keep his facts accurate. When novices are involved in criminal activity, it's pretty hard for them to put on a good act that convinces the detectives, the police, that something happened that they know didn't. It was pretty obvious that he wasn't given a full story. Once detectives feel like they're on to something, they keep pressing. He's given this song and dance, and we're having a hard time buying this. And they confronted him with that. He didn't last very long. He couldn't handle the pressure. And Jacobs confessed pretty quickly. Everson Jacobs tells detectives that he and a friend named Quincy Brown staged the attack. He got his buddy, Quincy Brown, to be the bad guy, be the shooter, and making it look like it was a robbery. He was tied up and then hit on the back of the head, and Quincy then assaulted Mr. Pierce down on the third floor. They were going to say that somebody came in the building and knocked him out, and he didn't know what was going on. Then Everson would just, you know, get medical treatment and be back to work in a couple days. When detectives ask Everson how long he had been planning the attack, he drops a bombshell. He'd been hired by Linda to commit the crime. She came to him with this offer, you know, that she wanted Pierce uh, done away with. And, you know, she could give him money and a job and everything would be great. I think that by them having so many conversations together that they got closer and closer and she was able to manipulate him into doing what she wanted him to do. She was also going to get him sports cars. So Evanson was to coordinate with his buddy Quincy Brown. He used to always tell me, he says, I'm going to get a Corvette, I'm going to get a Corvette. I guess that was an easier way to get it. Uh, he thought. Everson tells police that he was paid $600 for the job. He said, I actually have some of the money that I'm supposed to give the other guy. It's in, in my car. And they said, well, where's your car at? And he said, it's parked right in front of police headquarters. So they went down to his vehicle. I went down there with the guy. He opened his trunk and pulled back the carpet, and there was I think it was four $100 bills. I was like, wow, they're figuring, you know, putting these pieces together, and I was shocked. Coming up, twisted details emerge. He thought she was going to save him, and instead she killed him. And a picture of a cold and calculated mastermind comes into focus. She wanted him to do it. She was rubbing her hands together like Lady Macbeth. She had no remorse what she did. It was all fun and games to her. She did show me the silhouette of, the, of her target from her gun range. In hindsight, thinking back, all that fits. It's been less than 24 hours since attorney Donald Pierce was gunned down outside his office. Now, 21-year-old security guard Evison Jacobs tells investigators that Linda Culbertson paid him to carry out the shooting. Originally, it was a security guard that was propositioned with the murder for hire, and that security guard ended up hiring somebody else to do the shooting. Jacobs 
just knew that he could manipulate this kid to do this, and so he did it. With both Culbertson and Jacobs currently in custody, police begin a desperate search to locate the alleged shooter, Quincy Brown. We spotted him out close to his house, did a, did a pedestrian check, and brought him down. At the station, Quincy quickly confirms much of Evison Jacobs' story, with one game-changing exception. When they got Quincy, they got him to give it up pretty quickly. That's when he said, I didn't shoot him three times, I just shot him twice. According to Quincy, after tying up Evison Jacobs to make it look like a robbery, he proceeded to the third floor where he waited for Donald Pierce to leave his office. Probably the last seconds of Mr. Pierce's life was when he exited his office. The killer was standing opposite hallway from where he came out of his office and shot him in the shoulder first, and then in the knee. He was crawling to the elevator after that. And then Pierce is yelling to Linda, help me, Linda, help me, Linda. I think he thought Linda was going to save him. Instead, Quincy says Linda emerged from the office and yelled for him to finish the job. Linda's saying, shoot him again, he's still moving. Quincy says as Donald pled for his life, he wavered in delivering the final blow. She tries to get him to give him a coup de gras, and he won't do it. And that's when the suspect gave the shotgun to Linda. Linda goes in there, and she really didn't have any choice. She had to finish what she had started. He shot, but he's not dead. So she took the shotgun and finished the job. Quincy said she shot the last shot into his head. After the shooting, Quincy bailed out the back. Linda went back into the office, wrapped the shotgun up, and hid it in the law library. I don't think Quincy wanted to have anything to do with it, but he was such a loyal friend to Everson that he went and did, you know, what he asked. When detectives confront Linda with Quincy's version of events, she immediately shuts down. She actually never admitted to committing the crime or being involved in it in any way, shape, or form. Even without a confession, detectives feel they have enough proof to hold Linda, Evison Jacobs, and Quincy Brown for their involvement in the crime. One of the things that makes a good homicide detective is we're skeptical of everything that everybody tells us. We knew that. There's something rotten here. There's, there's something funny going on. With Quincy and Evison's stories in hand, police continue to search Linda's desk for evidence that backs up their case. That's when they find a receipt for shotgun shells and shooting lessons from a shooting range called the bullet hole. I just know that she did go to the shooting range and uh, practice with uh, the guns that she owned. She did show me the silhouette of, the, of her target from her gun range in hindsight, thinking back. All that fits, I just didn't have those other pieces to the puzzle. 
As the investigation continues, Linda's co-workers and friends begin to paint a disturbing picture of a suspect filled with rage and vindictiveness. We were told Linda had gone down to Mr. Pierce's vehicle, and I believe Linda had poured brake fluid on the vehicle. Brake fluid destroys your paint job. You know, the paint was all messed up on the car. For a long time, no one had an idea who it was. Now, after Linda Culbertson was in custody, suspicion fell on her. Police also take a second look at the previous office break-ins that Linda had reported. Some of the things stolen in these burglaries were later found hidden after the murder in the office, you know. I think that Linda was saving them. Don Pierce was going off to the Virgin Islands on vacation. And Linda had said, oh, someone came in and did this. You know, some things were stolen, a bunch of office equipment and TV, and supposedly her pearls and her fancy watch and so forth. That supposedly brought Pierce back from his vacation to check on Linda to make sure she was all right. So she had accomplished what she wanted was to break up their vacation. As for the theory Linda floated of an unhappy client killing Donald, that appears to be another lie. Linda Culbertson was the instigator on all, on all those threats. She made them all up. As detectives speak to more and more employees, they begin to paint a picture of a woman unhinged. It seems Linda had recently dated a maintenance man in the building, and it hadn't gone well. She was constantly clinging to him and, you know, calling him up in the middle of the night, wanting to come over. He was trying to get away from her. His exact words was, uh, she was half crazy. And, uh, was having trouble. He didn't want to have anything to do with her. Uh, he didn't want any involvement and asked to be transferred. But none of this seems to explain why Linda had become fixated on her boss, Donald Pierce. Why would you do that to somebody? What on earth would make you be so possessed with that man? Coming up a fatal attraction emerges. Everything in her mind was totally different than what reality was. She seemed like she was a scorned woman and she wasn't gonna let him go. And a new discovery seals the case as prosecutors head into trial. Prints were recovered from the shotgun. Detectives investigating the murder of attorney Donald Pierce believe his office manager, Linda Culbertson, is responsible for orchestrating his murder. I said, she's in this up to her ears. And there's no doubt in my mind, she's somehow involved in shooting this guy. Investigators are now relying on the evidence found in Linda's workspace and the word of those who knew Donald best in order to solve his murder and combat the accusations Linda has lobbied against him. Almost everything that was implied by the relationship between Donald and Linda Culbertson was all one-sided. 
she implied that Edson heard racial slurs made by Donald Pierce. So any of the other employees, any of the other people that we talked to said, well, that's not true. And Donald Pierce was not that kind of a guy. He didn't make those kind of statements to anybody, ever. Wasn't true. The police investigation also brings into question Linda's claims of Donald's abuse. Talking to her, he was mentally, physically, and sexually abusive towards her. There wasn't anybody else, any of the other employees, uh, any of the other people that we talked to that had any reason to suspect any of that was going on. But police are able to confirm one important piece of information. The relationship between Linda and Donald was not always harmonious. She said, I hate that man. <laughs> she tell me she just hates him. She didn't say why. Everson Jacobs did recall that he heard shouting from the office a couple of times, but he had no idea what it involved. While Donald's family insists he would never cheat on his wife or sexually assault Linda, police have to consider that the motive for the murder may have been a broken relationship between a boss and his employee. When I saw him interact with her, I did not think that it was happening. I just totally got a different vibe when I was there and I saw them communicate with each other. While it's unclear whether a soured relationship is the motivation for the crime, coworkers suggest yet another reason why Linda may have been upset with her boss. Linda supposedly was trying to start her own secretarial office company, and he had made statements to her that you're, you're never going to leave this place. She was trying to quit Don, she said. She was trying to quit him, and he wouldn't let her quit. Is it possible that Linda took drastic measures to break free from Donald? Maybe she reached the point of no return. She felt trapped. Unfortunately, you can't really say what the motive is. You don't know if it's, if it's the fact that she was just tired of being abused by him, if she was being abused. It could be that he told her that uh, he was not going to leave his wife if there was some question about doing that, but there was a plan to kill him. Absolute motive and purpose is unknown. Linda's fate is sealed when lab results from the shotgun used in Donald's murder finally come back. Linda Culbertson's prints were recovered from the shotgun. While police remain unsure of Linda's motivation, they're now confident of her involvement in the crime. And in September of 1990, prosecutors begin their attempt to prove her guilt inside a Missouri courtroom. She didn't go in front of a jury. Uh, she opted for a bench trial. That's when the lawyers agree to try just before a judge instead of a jury. The defense will agree to that if they think it's in their best interest. And in this case, they thought they had the best shot was with the judge. Prosecutors begin laying out their case by depicting Linda as a manipulative woman obsessed with Donald Pierce. It was a fatal attraction type scenario. Her demeanor and her dealings with him fluctuated from one extreme to the other. 
She respected him, idolized him, worshiped him, hated him, and in reality, for him, she was just his office manager and employee, period. That's it, but not to her. Linda's defense asserts their client was abused by Donald Pierce and that security guard Evison Jacobs and Quincy Brown were solely responsible for his death. She was trying to either spread the blame apart or put it on more focused on them so she could walk away from this. After resting their case, Linda and her defense team wait patiently for the verdict. They don't have to wait long. He didn't have to think about it. He didn't have to uh, consider it for several days. He just found her guilty and sentenced her. It was no surprise. The evidence was all over her. Linda Culbertson is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I thought she deserved it. I think any time you take a person's life, you should pay. Don should be remembered as a hard worker that he took the practice of law serious. He, he took that risk and that leap of faith to have something for himself and to still give his clients a good quality of service. And he, he did those things. It was crazy. It was a very hateful crime. If they would have given her the death penalty, that would have been way too easy. She needs to think about it for the rest of her life. For their role in the murder of Donald Pierce, both Evison Jacobs and Quincy Brown received life sentences in prison. Linda Culbertson continues to serve her life sentence in Missouri's Chillicothe Correction Center. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.